Okay, if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 11 and chapter 12. Judges chapter 11, chapter 12. And uh, be careful what you vow is the title of the message. And this is so very important. We are all the time making vows, aren't we? Uh, in a courtroom, you swear to tell, the whole, to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Or you used to swear uh, on the Bible that, or by the Bible, placing your hand upon it to tell the whole truth, letting the people in the courtroom, the judge and everyone else and God know that you were uh, telling the truth or supposed to. We uh, make a vow before the preacher or justice of peace uh, in marriage to love, to cherish, to be faithful, to support, protect our spouses in sickness and in health till death do us part. Uh, we make New Year's resolutions or vows to uh, do different things. Some of us make a vow to go on a diet, to lose a certain amount of weight. We may make a vow not to gossip anymore, not to say things about other people. We make vows to read and study our Bible during the year on a consistent basis. Spending time with the Lord on a, on a regular basis. We make vows to start tithing or tithing more consistently. We make vows to support the ministries of our church by being, uh, uh, you know, in places of service wherever we're needed. We uh, make vows to pray for certain things and certain individuals. We uh, have made vows before God trying to bargain with God even at times. If you will get me out of this financial mess, then I'll start tithing or I'll start doing better. I'll come to church more faithfully. But the question is, and we need to look at this, and I hope if we don't get anything else out of it, how serious do we consider the vows that we make? especially the vows before God. How serious do we take it? How serious have we taken it? More importantly, how does God take it? How does he view our vows? In Numbers 30, verses 1 and 2, God tells us how he feels about our vows or oaths. It says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, this is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man make a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This is very applicable for today. And the reason being that the passage was not talking about the kind of vow to make or the promise, kind of promise that we should make. It is talking about the point of interest here is talking about keeping the vow. That's the important thing. God takes them seriously. So the point of making vows is not to specify what kind of vow might be made, but how were they to be taken? How are we taking them? And, you know, uh, are we following through with them? 
in Deuteronomy. Another passage in the Old Testament, 23, chapter 23, verses 21 and 22, 23, it says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from bowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Or Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So, today we'll be finishing up our study with Jephthah. And Jephthah was an outcast. We've got to remember that. He was considered a loser. He was run out of town by his half-brothers. And he gathered some men about him to form a little uh, army, if you will, to protect the Israelites on the edge, the, the cutting edge where the, uh, the enemy would come over and steal and take from the Israelites. And so these men were considered worthless also. He was a Robin Hood type of person. And they, uh, they would camp in this territory, and when, they, when they, uh, the Israelites needed help, he came to the rescue. And so Jephthah and his men would uh, protect the Israelites by uh, fighting those who were in constant conflict with his brothers. And Israel was looking at this time for a capable warrior who would rise up and be able to fight the enemy, and they could not find any among their leadership. And so someone must have put his name before them. And uh, he consents, but only with certain stipulations. He says one stipulation was for him to remain their judge, their leader, after the war was over. And they agreed. And so Jephthah was a man who... Uh, not only developed warrior-type skills, but also leadership-type skills. And he spent time with God. And a lot of his life, uh, different things in it parallel with David when he was, uh, you know, a shepherd boy and, and coming up and becoming king. So with that time of development, Jeff, he also developed a what seems to be a close relationship with God. And and with an army, no doubt smaller than the enemy's army, Jephthah courageously engaged his men in battle, and they went to battle and had a remarkable victory, which de delivered Israel from her enemy of 18 years. And so we come to this passage, and if you'll look with me in, in verse 29, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he, uh, in chapter 11, so that, um, uh, hold on just a moment, so that, uh, yeah, in chapter 11. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow, and here it is, to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes 
out of the doors of my house to meet you when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon. It shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the sons uh, to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aurora to the entrance of Mineth, 20 miles, and as far as Abel, Keramim, so that the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Now, the thing is, he took his vow seriously. This is very important, and we'll look at it in just a moment. This is what I want to, uh, us to focus on, but in focusing in on it, we need to know what kind of vow wa it was. And there's different views concerning Zephthah and his vow. Now, some of you may have talked differently. The, the, it's, it's basically boiled down to three views here. And one thought that a human being would come out of his house to greet him. Therefore, he deliberately anticipated offering a human sacrifice to win God's favor and grant him victory. Now, most of these that believe this view believe also in the second part of it when, when he um, fights against Ephraim, his uh, fellow brothers, that uh, he, was, he had gotten away from God here and, and uh, he, uh, he dealt in both situations wrongly. But we, we're going to look at it a little bit more closely and hopefully uh, see where he's coming from. So according to this view, he carried out the vow of the slaughtering of his daughter and offering her body as a, a burnt sacrifice. That's one view. The second view says that Jephthah expected either an animal or human being to come out of his house and meet him when he returned from battle. Now, if an animal had come out, it would be sacrificed as a burnt offering. But if a person appeared, he or she would be dedicated to Jehovah for lifelong service at the tabernacle. And this is a view that's reflected really in the version that I read you tonight. And a lot of this is, it goes along with the third view too, which is what I'm going to place most of the emphasis on. And the third view says that Jephthah expected a person to meet him. It, he, it, wasn't, it wasn't a decision between two and he would deal with one differently. He expected a person to meet him meet him and in carrying out the vow then he did not slaughter his daughter but made her the lord's in another sense and arguments that support this view say first of all it seems clear that the object of the vow was a person as in joshua 2:19, it has the same grammatical construction there so it's extremely doubtful the Conjunction should be translated or, or animal or a person, giving Jephthah the option of offering a person to lifelong religious service uh, or an animal as a burnt offering. The second phrase uh, does not occur in that way, but it reflects more of the uh, uh, New King James Version, Authorized King James, or the NIV Version. Second of all, in support of this view, it's best to understand the clause. It shall be the Lord's in terms of what Hannah meant 
when she said of her uh, unborn child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life in 1 Samuel 1.11. In reference to that passage, Samuel was given for temple service for the rest of his life to the Lord. And a third uh, point that goes along with this that supports it is several Old Testament passages indicate that there were orders of unmarried female servants at the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, and 1 Samuel 2, 22, or 2 in particular. And possibly the story of the daughters of Shiloh in Judges 21 refers to a group of young ladies here uh, who were tabernacle servants. Uh, and so uh, this is intended for the pattern for his daughter to be uh, or to go into. We know that they were unmarried women uh, because they were available, it says later, as potential wives for the tribe of Benjamin. And then the fourth supporting part of that view is the Hebrew word for burnt offering does not connotate the idea of death but speaks of, uh, only of something being offered up to the Lord completely, completely. This was carried out in animal sacrifice but it also would have perfectly described the young woman who would have served the rest of her life as a virgin at the tabernacle. Fifth, the support in this view, the text emphasizes the perpetual virginity of Jephthah, his daughter there in Judges 11, 37 through 39. The, one, the young woman and her companions wept. Why? Because of this. The result was she had no relations with a man, it says in verse 39. The grief expressed by Jephthah his daughter and her companions was appropriate because she was the only child, his only child, and her perpetual virginity meant this family would have no further family or children. So a special misfortune to any in the Old Testament in Leviticus 22 and Psalm 78, 63 talks about this, how important children are. And Jephthah uh, mourned uh, the termination of his lineage. So uh, the sixth point in view of this is Jephthah is cited approvingly in Samuel's address to the nation in 1 Samuel 12, 11, and in Hebrews chapter 11. He's listed beside Samuel and David. And then also, the next point in view of this is human sacrifice was contrary to Mosaic law. In Leviticus 18, 21, 20, verses uh, 2 through 5, Deuteronomy 12, 31, and 18, 10. And, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, contrary to Israelite practice. How could we suggest that God-fearing Jephthah could have supposed it would please God to practice such an abomination to the Lord. And no Jewish priest, I don't think, would have submitted to such an act. If they did, that they would have been so far away from God, they shouldn't even have been in the priesthood. And so 
when a foreign king offered his son as a, a human sacrifice, the Israelites became very uh, uh, angry and promptly left the area in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, verse 27. And then the eighth point in view of this is uh, on careful examination, the text does not support the idea that Jephthah made a rash vow. How did he deal with the king from Ammon, or the Ammonite king? He dealt with him in a logical way, didn't he? He tried to get him to see uh, where he was wrong, but he would not adhere to it. He didn't act out of emotions, did he? He went to him and he dealt with him, and, and, uh, but he would not adhere to it. The king wouldn't, and so he went to war with him. You know, his, uh, his emotional balance and logical outlook on life are clearly demonstrated by the fact that he sought to negotiate peace with him. So the vow was made by one who had a high respect for God and his will. And the ninth thing is the passage makes no claim that human sacrifice was involved in carrying out Jephthah's uh, vow. It only states he did to her according to the vow which he had made. And the words that immediately follow there is, and she had no relations with a man. So what would that imply? What would that lead you to think? It would lead you to think that, that uh, she's committing her life to continual celibacy, doesn't it? And then 10, we note that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah to enable him to, uh, uh, to win a remarkable victory over the Ammonites. And it's extremely difficult, it seems like, to believe that God would have granted the victory if Jephthah had uh, vow intended something contrary to what he had his people believe. And that was a human sacrifice. And then finally, it's difficult to understand why it became a fixed custom in Israel that every year the young girls would rehearse her act for four days if she had been sacrificed. They'd been having a lot of sacrifices, wouldn't they? So, it seems like with the last view, which I tend to lean towards, as you see, I, I put more emphasis on that. Uh, I know others and, and great theologians believe otherwise, but I, I tend to think that these uh, points here of support uh, seem to, to let us know that this was a vow of, uh, you know, continual celibacy. Now, the attitude towards the vow, this is a very important thing. Nowhere in the text are we told that Zephthah actually killed his daughter, nor do we find anybody bewailing the, the uh, girl's death. The emphasis in 11, 37 through 40 is the fact that she remained a virgin. So it seems both the father and the daughter were obedient. They had a right view towards God. They were obedient to what the scriptures taught regarding the requirements of God in respect to the payment of a vow. The abiding principle of Judges 11, 34 through 40 seems to be that Zephthah was a man who kept his vow. Now, before we go any further, let's just look at that. How are we with our vows? How, how do people look at their vows today? 
wedding vows before God, vows to, uh, to be good parents, vows to be committed in the church, vows to uh, take, out, take up certain responsibilities. Do we believe that we're making them before God? And if we do, how serious, how, how much emphasis are we putting on that as far as seriousness is concerned in doing that and making that vow to God? We see a man who believed in it and carried it out. Whether you believe the other way and he sacrificed his daughter or not, he did stay true. He believed in God and he believed that it vowed to God was serious and he carried it out. I don't believe that uh, the, the daughter was sacrificed here due to the facts that I'll share. But I do believe that he took the vow seriously and that even if he didn't take the, his daughter's life, celibacy really affected he and his family. And so we see him doing this. Now here's another area that the people say that believe that he sacrificed his daughter, that believe that he made a mistake, and that's how he dealt with his fellow brothers, his fellow kinsmen, the uh, Ephraimites. And so I look at it as a very consistent, and I want you to look at at uh, what's, what he says here and what's done here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, I want you to look at his consistent stand. He stood true to the vows, and he sta- he's standing true to what uh, he should do as far as how he should handle the situation before the Lord, I believe. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned. Now, listen very carefully. And they crossed to Zaphon. And said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? Who does that sound like? They did the same thing with who? Gideon. Not not your son, but Gideon. Okay. Uh, He says, Now look at what they threatened to do. Not him. They threatened to do. Did he call them over to confront them about them not fighting? No. He says, they come over and then they say, we will burn your house down on you. What, does that, what is that? That's a threat to kill him, isn't it? That's a threat to kill him and his family. So Zephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. There was great difficulty. They were coming on, uh, coming to, to fight us, and they were wanting to overtake us. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. In other words, he sent out a plea to everyone. Well, I need some help. When I saw that you would not Deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon. And the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? What in the world are you doing? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim because they threatened him. And the men of Gilead 
<coughs> defeated Ephraim because they said, here they are, they're throwing further insult upon him. You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gilead, Gileites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. In other words, you pulled these people out, these renegades. The Gileites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim, and it happened when any of the fugitive of Ephraim said, let me cross over. In other words, is he going to let them go back over or just stay there under his, uh, their, their control? Is he going to let them go back over and rise up again? They've already uh, uh, arose one time, haven't they, against Gilead, uh, against um, who? Yeah. And then now Ephraim. And so uh, here they... He says, they're going back, be careful. He says, "If here's what he says. Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, say now, Shibboleth. Now look at that. S-H-I-B-B-O-L-E-T-H. But he said, Sib, Sibboleth. S-I-B-B-O-L-E-T-H. For he could not pronounce it correctly. They got to the point where they took off the S-H because they couldn't pronounce it correctly. Where they were growing up. And then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Jephthah judged Israel six years. That's very important. He still judged Israel after this fight six years. Then Jephthah, uh, the Gilead, uh, Gileadite, died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now, the confrontation, if you look at it, with uh, Ephraim. While Jephthah's daughter is away and her maidens are mourning their childlessness, another burden here is thrust upon him. Unheralded, unwanted, but it's thrust upon him. Now that the battle is over and the real danger is past, what happens? The proud and fierce people of Ephraim confront Jephthah probably outside his house. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned and they crossed and uh, Zaphon, uh, crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to uh, go with you? We will burn your house down on you. So the tribe of Ephraim once again aspired to lead and apparently had an attitude of superiority with respect to other tribes. But his influence was, you know, uh, was ignored or its superiority, not, if it was ignored or uh, not recognized, what happened? The tribe of Ephraim was offended. And they had become angered on a previous occasion, as I said with Gideon, and, uh, and y'all helped me out there, and did not invite them to participate in his surprise attack on the Midianites. So now jealous of Eph uh, Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites, they crossed the Jordan, and what did they do? They expressed their resentment to Jephthah in cruel and scornful words. 
Once again, they accuse the military leader of what? Of failing to summon them to war against a common enemy and threaten Jephthah's life. So the Ephraimites had refused to join Jephthah when uh, he attacked the Ammonites, and now they are in, you know, indignant about not having shared in the honor. They didn't rise up to help, but they're indignant in not sharing in the honor. So what is the response to uh, Ephraim's threat? Jephthah responded to their insulting words and threat with what? A quiet, courageous, and determined heart. He says he approached uh, the Ephraimites and he was more confrontational than Gideon. Gideon, uh, you know, uh, placated them with soothing words, but Jephthah said, enough is enough. And so uh, they had failed to respond. As a result, when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. He pointed out that it was the Lord who gave them to him. He wanted them to know that. Not him. He wasn't doing it for himself. It was the Lord. And the reaction of Jephthah's answer, the Ephraimites were not satisfied with his answer, so they provoked the Israelites even more with uh, sneering comments and uh, about his soldiers and their, them being renegades. And so um, we see that, that uh, after Ephraim was defeated, Jephthah and his men captured the fords and, and uh, intending to prevent surviving Ephraimites from returning to their home, causing further problems. They came up with this uh, uh, you know, password here, and as a result, Zephthah and his men slew 42,000 on the spot. And they were betrayed by their speech. Now, many condemned him for this action. They said that he could have prevented war. Maybe so. But the fact remains that the people of Ephraim approached him intent on bloodshed. It wasn't him approaching them. Their spirit was such that Zephthah could could not placate them. They were ready to burn down his house with him in it. And so their spirit was such that, that uh, he had to do something about it. And we need to remember that Zephthah had become God's representative to the people as a whole. And the fight against him was tantamount to fighting against the Lord because he was God's called leader. And the Ephraimites did not recognize this because of how they indicated it by being spiritually insensitive to it. And their tongues kindled the flame and the tongues betrayed them also by the wording that they gave way uh, to, to let him know that they were Ephraimites. And so we've got to remember that it was Zephthah who, what, became Uh, you know the leader here and who reasoned with them first reminding them that his first concern was to defeat the Ammonites not to please his neighbors he was straightforward also during the 18 years with the uh, that the Ammonites oppressed the people of Israel the Ephraimites did not offer to come to their rescue And then third, Zephthah reminded them that he had issued a call for 
the tribes to assist him in the attack on the enemy. But Ephraim hadn't responded. So God gave them victory without Ephraim's help. He let them know this. Perhaps Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Maybe he could have used more gentle words. But I think it had risen to a point where something needed to be done and there needed to be a firm stand to take. We all recognize that at times. We, we, we recognize that with our children and, and, and uh, teaching and different things and dealing with people that you try to work it out to the point where there comes a time where you have to take a stand and take it firmly. That's the only way that they will understand this. And this was, uh, he had to, you know, he was calling troublemakers bluff. And sometimes discipline must occur, unfortunately. So when the people are wrong and refuse to accept logical reasoning and confess their faults, they often turn to violence in order to protect their reputation. This is what happened with them. And unfortunately, strife among the people of God occurs because of the same sort of pride and jealousy and hurt feelings that happened here. James talks about it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So while Zephthah's uh, retaliation may have seemed excessive, and it could have been. He apparently continued as a respected leader east of the Jordan. He served that portion for six more years. Number one, vows are important. We need to take serious any vows that we make. They're not to be made lightly, and especially to the Lord. I think that We hear this over and over again. You cannot trust a person. You can't count on his word. We've taken vows too lightly for too long. And we as Christians need to stand up to what is right. We need to show other people that we intend to follow through with the vows that we make. Whether it be with the children, whether it be with the family, whether it be at work, whether it be wherever, we as a church need to exemplify that and show other people that we take it serious. We should respect the vows that we made, especially to the Lord. We should be faithful to any promise or commitment we made to the Lord in the church. Too often we have spiritual failures, don't we? My life, your life, whatever. Christians who have promised to God to serve Him in one way or another and have not had the uh, fidelity that Zephtha showed in this chapter. Whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's half-hearted efforts given in training, investing in training, whether it's preparation, whether it's having quiet time with the Lord, whether it's uh, studying with the Lord consistently, accepting offices in the church, our team positions, 
sidestepping assignments, these all show that we don't take stock, we don't take seriously the vows that we make. The Lord wants men and women who will regard the acceptance of the church responsibility as a solemn obligation, not discharging the responsibilities that go with them. Why? Because that shows other people that we are true to our word. But it also shows other people that we are true to God's word. And we respect the higher being, God. And that there is a higher being. And people need to see this. And so, the third thing is, there's a time for kind words and bending. But there comes a time to take a strong stand. No longer bending and definitely not compromising, no matter what the cost. Realizing that we don't answer to others, we answer to God. Who did David say he'd sinned against? Bathsheba. Did he say he sinned against her husband? Did he say he sinned against Israel? He said, I've sinned against who? God. So that's what we need. That's what we need to realize. He is the one that we answer to. Let's bow our heads in prayer.